instantly when I went out there, I was like, oh, I could do magic shows out here. A 500 square foot back patio turned into an elevated stage with a full kind of 12 foot tall proscenium arch and like 50 yeah. seats and a bar in the back. And oh um, all of these things that were very borderline legal. Um, <laughs> the entire six months of shows would just sell out in 60 seconds. Wow. Um, it was crazy. Hello. How are you? Oh, doing all right. I am in the process of moving into a new house. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, which is which is actually a rather good little lockdown activity. <laughs> um, but anyways. So you studied engineering at Brown, is that right? Kind of, although I have a Bachelor of Arts in Engineering, which is like such a Brown thing to do. Yeah, that's really Brown, yeah. <laughs> so essentially, I went into Brown, I mean, you know, I was very much wooed by the open curriculum and just kind of the promise of being able to take a bunch of different classes. But for me, the reason was mainly I didn't know if I wanted to focus on engineering or theater. And just those are such opposite things in most cases. And it's like kind of hard to do both unless you have the freedom that, you know, the open curriculum provides. The reason I got into engineering was all around sort of building and designing and since I was eight years old if you asked me what I was going to do with my life I was I said design roller coasters and that was my and truly like my whole reason to get a degree in engineering was knowing that that's what you needed to design roller coasters. I love that. Um, yeah well and in fact I did my my thesis my Brown senior college thesis on roller coaster design. Oh really? And, um, yeah I had an amazing advisor her name her name's Janet Bloom, and actually, I believe she's still at Brown. I think she's in the provost's office. Maybe she was like the dean oh, of faculty, gosh. actually. Feel free to fact check all of those lies that I probably <laughs> said. Um, but anyways, she was, she was amazing, and kind of one of the things that she clued me into was this um, Bachelor of Arts in Engineering. And what it meant was there were a lot less classes I needed to take in order to complete that degree. And then it freed me up to take all these classes like down at RISD. And that's where I was like, uh -huh. oh man, industrial design and architecture. I think that's what I thought engineering was. <laughs> like all of these projects and like designing buildings. And, you know, I took this amazing class, an industrial design studio, where it was all about like transportation in like underserved areas of the world. And I was like, oh man, that's what, that's what engineering was supposed to be. So that really worked out that you went to Brand, the open curriculum, and then also RISD was right there. I feel like hopefully every student in college, regardless of the university, has that experience where they're like, oh my gosh, like all of these things just lined up and I, there's no other school that I could have gone to that would have done any of this for me. And I mean, I so firmly believe that you make your own college career, you know, like in your hands and yeah, it is what you make it. But like other things like at Brown, there's an incredible collection of magic literature in the Hay Library called the Adrian Smith Magic Collection. Um, and it's like, I mean, it's like a very thorough and complete collection of magic literature, a massive collection, just thousands and thousands of volumes um, donated by this guy, Adrian Smith, who I believe was an alum from like 1936 or something like that. And when he died, he bequeathed his whole collection and an endowment to the university. So like, it took me a year to discover that, but I spent the next three years sort of deep in the bowels of the Hay Library, like <laughs> learning really obscure magic. And I was like, okay, well, so maybe Brown was really the perfect. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's cool. so funny. Wait, that's very obscure. How did you even find that out? Because I had no idea that was a thing. Yeah, I didn't either. I didn't either. Like I applied <laughs> to this school 
already as a magician and like my first yeah I don't know how I didn't know this um but uh, I found out my sophomore year someone who was on campus and also a magician had heard of me and like we met up and he was like yeah have you checked out the magic library yet also just the fact that like a magician would call the hay library the magic library I mean that's, yeah. that's like, <laughs> this reading room when I was there so it, it oh. totally felt like I was going back 200 years to like the founding of America and sitting in these <laughs> just crazy room where you know you wore gloves and put books on foam wedges and like oh my god barely talk and you had to be completely silent and oh my god I loved that's it incredible. I was like yes this is how magic is meant to be learned <laughs> that's so cool wait till you do a magic show for the seniors every year yeah so every year since graduating um they brought me back to do a magic show uh for senior week so I usually kick off senior week it's like I it's like the first so it's the Sunday before commencement yeah it's amazing it's in Solomon 101 and I mean it's Solomon 101 is full so it's like what 500 six I don't know it's like a huge magic show every year one of my biggest shows that I do and the seniors (laughs) yeah wait are you a senior no I'm not oh good but like that's good I think at this point maybe people know that it's a it's a pretty fun show but uh-huh. There are always like at least a hundred people that who are like, ugh, like a magic show. Fine, let's get drunk before this and see what this is about. And, <laughs> and then they're like, oh no, wait, this is good. <laughs> That's so awesome. If I get drunk, I'm not going to be able to follow any of this. <laughs> That's yeah, so cool. So you said that you came into Brown as a magician already? Yeah, so I've always been a magician. I think everyone at some point has a magic phase, and I just sort of never stopped it. (laughs) I mean, I did a magic show when I was six years old for the uh, talent show at my elementary school. And I mean, that was like one of my biggest audiences, actually, because it was a massive public elementary school and like all of their parents showing up for this talent show. So I think it was like me as a six-year-old in front of 600 people, right, like doing very silly small little magic tricks but so I had always been a magician in high school I worked at a magic shop so you know the four years of high school I worked I worked at a shop and kind of when you work at a magic shop that's when you kind of get really good because you're demoing tricks constantly and so you have to not only be really good at the magic you're performing you have to make it look so effortless so that anyone watching you believes that they can do it themselves which they can they just need to practice but it's like that's almost this whole extra layer of mastery really of of the trick and a performance is not only fooling people but also getting them excited to want to do it themselves i was performing constantly for like kids birthday parties and you know the occasional holiday party and company event i never really thought of it as a career so much as an expanded hobby um and that was still true frankly until like two years ago Um, (laughs) were you always interested in pursuing engineering even throughout high school oh yeah definitely I mean I'm a pretty persistent and stubborn person so (laughs) when I decided at age eight I was going to be a roller coaster designer I was like cool like math and physics here we go like for the next that's pretty amazing because I feel like most people like waver and switch like millions of times yeah well and I I did do that to be honest but it it, but rather than millions it was like tens and I just would dive very very deep into like sort of subjects that interested me and power to my parents I mean if you want to use the improv language they were just always like yes and you know if I if I showed excitement about anything they were like cool like how do we support that? Like, let's learn about this. Let's go on family vacations to Ohio so we can ride the best roller coasters in the country. Like, what? they were just so supportive. Um, and I, I think that's the thing is, it's not like I was getting obsessed with these things that were just sort of random kooky ideas. It was like, I actually, I loved engineering and building and, you know, like the perfect beach day for me. I'm from the Northwest. So like, 
I'm not really a beach person, but I love Northwest beaches because I'd spend like four hours building things with driftwood. You know, <laughs> that was just always kind of my MO as a kid was, was building. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I don't know why roller coasters sort of specifically sunk their teeth into me, but they did. And then when you were at Brown, did you host your own magic shows like when you were a student as well? So yeah, when I was like a freshman, I held a couple shows like the first semester in my dorm. I was in Perkins. So Lord knows we didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> But anyways, yeah, so I would just do like some magic shows in the common rooms, like twice a semester or something like that. Uh Um, And then the second semester of my freshman year, I learned about PW, uh, Production Mm -hmm. Workshop, which, you know, is right right across the street from Perkins. So there was some proximity there. But also, again, I mentioned that theater was something I was always interested in. Um, And like my first semester I took acting classes and engineering classes and like that was that was mainly it I guess um and I kind of realized that I was much more into like the weird kind of artsy theater stuff and I was like oh that's not I don't know that's not exactly what I'm getting from the department um and I mean the department does that too for sure as I learned (laughs) later on but uh for whatever reason, it wasn't quite gelling with me at the, at the beginning. And then I found PW and was just like, oh my God, this is it. These are my people. So um, from there, I got on the PW board as a freshman and spent the next, you know, three and a half years just very, very deep in that world. I don't know if you know much about PW, but I have feels- a couple of friends who are, who are in PW. They have the, another one called MF. It's like musical form. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. PW and MF are like fake rivals. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a little rift between them. Oh yeah, I was part of the initial crew that started the laser tag battle between PW and MF once a year. (laughs) And then we also did a thing called Capture the Mammoth, which was like a campus-wide capture the flag game. But instead of flags, we had these mammoth costume heads. It's crazy. Anyways, it was perfect. That was, if I'm being honest, like at least 50% of my college education was PW. And just, and so many of the skills that I learned from that are the skills that I have Uh, like applied in my career both Uh in the obvious ways like building and creating a theater in San Francisco but also like all of the work I was doing at IDEO which is you know the design firm I was at for five years like I was using all of those same building and hands-on skills and like there's so much just scrappiness at PW and it's like figure out a way to make it work like with what we've got like go into the shop quick build something like quick go up into the air and hang a light and you know it's just it was such an incredible um learning experience so anyways I then had access though to that theater uh and I applied to produce a few magic shows there and so my senior year I did a production um in the down space so the main space at PW um, called Illusions of Grandeur Hmm. which was a great title (laughs) it's kind of funny that show Illusions of Grandeur which I did in 2009 has kind of been the basis for the show that I've done professionally for the for the past like 11 years so the show I'm doing right now at the magic patio is still called illusions of grandeur um yeah and I'd say like 50% of the material is the same I do it very very differently now even that (laughs) material that is you know I I would say I have grown a lot in the 11 years (laughs) that I've been doing this show but um yeah it's like the basis of a lot of my career has been from that 2009 show at PW so that's crazy and then actually one other fun little kind of coda to this story is that my senior year I lived on Governor Street I lived in 108 Governor so also very close to PW um that was kind of a conscious choice to live somewhere on that side of campus uh but a good friend of mine who lived in the house with me did a semester abroad and her room was vacant and rather than like trying to fill it last minute we just had a vacant room in the house and this was uh 
first semester of senior year. And I guess I'm like opportunistic like this, but I saw her empty room as like a very small little black box. And so I I actually built seating platforms and in her room made a 25 person magic theater. And for the month of October, hosted people there every weekend. I mentioned that because I feel like that was sort of the starting point of this whole idea of doing magic at home, (laughs) which is what has, you know, been a very important revelation to me for the past seven years. Were your other roommates like cool with it? Were they just like, yeah, okay, he's just gonna build a magic show like in the room? Yeah, these are brown students. Like people love this shit. That's true. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it was great. They even helped. Like, there was a final light cue where I had this song and I did this really beautiful illusion. And then, like, I snapped my fingers and the lights in the room went out. <laughs> and the way that that worked was, like, I hung curtains around the room so you couldn't see, like, you know, the, the shitty walls or whatever. And yeah. there was a door that no one knew about that led to, like, the bathroom. So one of my roommates knew, you know, oh, okay, at, like, 9:55, like walk downstairs go into the bathroom and wait for andrew to snap his fingers and then you know so we had like someone oh, doing light cues that. basically yeah it was hilarious it was so fun it was so fun i called the show oikos which is like greek for home this was before the yogurt by the way oh my god that yogurt <laughs> came out and i was like no I, it was so good they it was like they stole it like oikos yeah. it was about home it was just the right level of like pretentious greek reference like oh come <laughs> on or, i should have oh yeah. good god is it Dannon or is it yo play i don't i think it's Dannon. i don't, I don't even know but anyway <laughs> and then was the content of the show different from the one that you were doing in pw yeah so the content of that show it's again interesting just to see how all these shows i've done like i've taken something from each of them and still use that today and perform it. So it was a 25 person show though, which means that's a close up show. So I had a table and I was doing a lot of tricks that were like on the table, like card tricks, you know, things that you could only really see with 24 other people in the room um, in a way that for the PW show, especially the show in the down space where I think we probably had about a hundred plus people there every night. I was doing like big illusions, like, you know, upside down straight jacket escapes where I was in a straight jacket hoisted up to the top of the ceiling, like, and you know, all that kind of big, big magic. If you want to call it that. And then when you're learning magic tricks, do you learn it by reading stuff or like going online and finding out how to do it and then just practicing it? Or do you learn new magic tricks from other people, like other magicians? How does that work? It's an awesome question because there's not a good answer. A lot of people um, have different ways that they go about learning and I should say creating magic, but also like it's kind of controversial in certain ways. So to give you an example, I mean, the magic world, if I'm at all known in the magic world, which frankly I'm not, but it's like, no, please, I'm not. But it's like, the, the, the thing that makes me stand out is that I'm an engineer and a designer. And so like everything that I perform for the most part is stuff that I've built myself. And people are like, wait, what? Like, and then people come to the theater and they're like, what do you mean you built this? And I'm like, I don't know. What do you mean? What do I mean? Like, I have a table saw downstairs and I am very good friends with the lumber yard in San Francisco. Like, what do you mean? But like, that's just how I, that's just what I've always done, I guess. But anyway, so like when it comes to magic though, yeah, magic has this incredibly rich history that is all based on secrets though. So it's also this crazy conundrum, right? And so like the public doesn't really know much about it. Also, if you dive into magic books, they have been written in a way 
I'd say to like obfuscate a little bit. Like there is a very intentional barrier to entry. Like you might read a card trick book and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just uh, you know, do the push off to get your double lift, uh, do a seamless flip, top change down, and then the card is different. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Talk about that push off, the double lift, and what's a top change? Like, yeah. so, you know, there's all of this kind of jargon and vernacular that means everything to magicians and means nothing to other people. And so um, books I have found are the best source for uh, ideas as well as tricks. And that was part of the reason why the Hay Library was such this incredible resource. I just didn't even understand like the books that were there for quite a while. And I, I think they're probably books that very few other magicians have ever read. And so I was discovering all of these incredible secrets. And sometimes uh, they were tricks specifically where I was just like, wow, that trick sounds amazing. I will now build it. And like, you know, thank you, whoever from 1940, like, cool. <laughs> but then other times it'd be like, wow, like, that seems like a bonkers idea from 1880. Um, I wonder how that idea can like find modern application and then go into design mode and try to figure out like a new trick based on that, you know? That's so cool. that's a huge question for anyone in an artistic world, right? right it's like, yeah. how do you find inspiration? But yeah. it is, it's totally true in magic. Like sometimes you are doing other people's tricks directly. Sometimes you're using other ideas as inspiration to come up with something unique. One of the things I always say is like, but you never expect Romeo and Juliet to have written their lines. <laughs> and you certainly don't expect them to have built the set that they're performing on. Right. Um, but in magic, magicians kind of get credit for all of that. Mm. Or the audience, I think, thinks that the magicians came up with all of this stuff themselves. And that's not at all the case. Like there are so many incredible magic designers and inventors out there. Mm. And it's not at all a cop out to do other people's material. In fact, it's yeah. expected. It's why people sell magic tricks and books are published. And right. um, ma magicians often add their own twist to things. But magicians are performers just like other performers where there's incredible material out there in the world that we have access to. Mm hmm. And like, even yeah. if somebody did have access to the material, like, it's not like they could perform it in the way that magicians could. Yeah, the idea of originality in, in magic is really interesting. You know, I'm friends with a lot of magicians, and we talk shop and like share tricks that we're working on and all that. Mm -hmm. But if you don't really know another magician or performer, mm -hmm. myself included, I am like a little guarded, right? Because it's yeah. like, you have a trick you're working on and maybe it's not a complete idea yet, but you know there's like a nugget there and there's something that could be good. And right. so I'm a little hesitant sometimes to share that with yeah. just anyone in case they come up with the cool thing before I do. But it's also, that's so the opposite of how I operate creatively, which is all around collaboration. And in fact, the acknowledgement that by only having half-baked ideas that you put in the world, that's how you make them good. Because you you get other people's input, be it other designers or, you know, people you're designing for who give you feedback it's like by putting that stuff that's not quite ready out there that's how you make it ready <laughs> so it's a bit of a catch-22 sometimes when you're performing you know that it's not fully fleshed but the feedback that you'll get will make it even better yeah so I'm like from a very specific school of design. I went to Stanford for design, but like the, the school at Stanford like focuses on this thing that has had many names over the years, but like human-centered design or design thinking. And um, I think that term is kind of thrown around a lot and a little overused, frankly. But basically the idea is that design can be a, a process um, that applies to a lot of different things, not just like graphic design or product design or architecture. And that process, at least in the way that Stanford taught it, is from a human-centered approach, which means you start with people, understand like what are their needs, 
and then from there come up with your ideas as opposed to saying like I'm a designer I probably got some good ideas like let me thrust them onto the world it's like no 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 start with people understand their needs um, and then from there come up with ideas and very quickly make prototypes create like a version of this thing and as fast as possible put that unfinished prototype back into the world and show it to the people you're designing for so they can tell you if it's any good or not because they're the ones who you're trying to impact with something right like it makes so much sense you say that out loud and it just feels like common sense and so i love that and that approach really really spoke to me that's the world i've been living in for like almost a decade now and i believe in it so deeply and then it's so weird to be like well with magic don't do any of that like don't prototype like make something perfect before you put it out into the world it's like no that's not that's not right so where's the middle ground but the truth is with magic i think there is a base level that you have to get to before you can even test it as a prototype and that is it has to fool the audience i mean if you do a trick that people are like well no no no, it was just in your left hand it was like <laughs> the card was sticking out of your left hand you know like that's that's not a useful prototype yeah yeah sure. so yeah it's like a it's been a funny thing to try to figure out what is the right version of prototyping um and testing ideas that's you know? so interesting i think that yeah. the crossover between like what you've learned from the stanford design school of like prototyping magic tricks it's just like a very unique concept. But I like it. it is. And I guess what I've ended up prototyping more than the tricks themselves are sort of the overall experiences of Magic Patio shows. Oh. So, so much of what we do at the Magic Patio, and I think what's made it a pretty successful endeavor, is that we're not just thinking of how do we make the best magic trick or even the best magic show, but how do we create this whole experience from like how you find out about it to how you get invited to how you arrive to how you sit down to what you're drinking to what the program looks like. Like all of those components are things that we, and I say we, by the way, because it's a team. It's like yeah. it's a pretty big team that makes this happen. But like we painstakingly have designed all of those touch points to be, I mean, magical for lack of a better term. But I, the metaphor I've always used is that um, and again, I'm a, like a roller coaster Disney nerd, but I, I think of the magic patio as sort of an urban Disneyland and the magic show is, is like the ride. It's like Thunder Mountain or Space yeah. Mountain. This is your roller coaster. It is. Oh. No, it is. It does feel like the magic patio has sort of been this very natural progression and pivot um, from roller coasters, but to something that still kind of has the same level of playfulness and engineering. And um, yeah, I've had like... I've had a pretty crazy path from graduating high school to where I am now, but I think it all kind of has made sense in weird ways. Yeah. So after you graduated from Brown, then did you like move to San Francisco and found the magic patio or what happened? No, no. So this is where that story gets, it gets crazy. After I graduated Brown, I spent two years designing and building very high-end tree houses just outside of Seattle, Washington. <laughs> like, like, so, like professional tree house designer? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's like, so, okay. So let's just rewind to Brown again, where I was like studying engineering. I went to school not knowing if I wanted to do theater. Then engineering, theater, set design becomes a pretty obvious and awesome intersection of the two of those. Right. And so I, I spent a lot of time in college, like as a set designer okay. in, in theater, both like at PW primarily, but also for some main stage shows and just 
again, that was where so much of my education kind of came from at Brown. Um, and so I had this whole skill set that was around engineering and architecture and set design. And, you know, so that involved drafting and thinking of construction plans and blueprints and building scale models and all that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. so I was then looking for like the next way to apply that skill set. I went home to where I'm from, which was Seattle that Christmas, you know, when I was back, I guess, whatever, December, I yeah. was at Barnes and Nobles when that store still existed. Aww. And there was a, <laughs> there was a, a book rack that was like, you know, 50% off books or whatever. And there was this coffee table book of tree houses. And I was like, oh my God, like, look at this. These are, these are beautiful. So I grabbed the book, took it home. And then when I finished reading it, I realized that it was all from a guy who like ran this treehouse company in Seattle. So I was like, wait, what? And so I just cold called him and yeah, got hired. And, yeah, actually? And, yeah. So his name's Pete Nelson. And I worked with him for about two years before going to grad school. Um, and in those two years, the company was still pretty underground and doing incredible and amazing work. But right when I left is when it gained sort of national popularity because oh. the Animal Planet picked up a reality show with this company. I was basically part of the initial interview process where the producers came to Treehouse Point, which was the name of the place where I was working, mm -hmm. and like interviewed a bunch of us on camera. That was part of, I guess, what they used to pitch to the executives who then like cool. greenlit the show. The show then went on for 10 seasons and like created oh, wow. such incredible popularity and made this oh, guy wow. super famous, but also made the company incredibly famous and really launched this massive treehouse movement in a sense. So like I literally went to college like right as they started the first <laughs> season of that show. And the producers were like, where's that like short, funny kid who does magic? Like he's going to be great <laughs> on TV. And <laughs> so, so in a funny. I know. So in another world, if I deferred going to grad school, I feel like I would have still been a treehouse builder. Wait, so did the company build extremely elaborate treehouses? Oh, yeah. These are like quarter million dollar minimum treehouses. Oh I mean, the, 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 yeah. What treehouse is like, unless you've seen the show or like seen one of these books, treehouse conjures, you know, an image of like a scrap thing in a tree yeah. with kids. These were like, I mean, one of the last projects I worked on with them had an elevated loft with two queen beds. And then on the bottom floor what? was a whole bar with a kitchen and a refrigerator. There was a Holy flush shit. toilet and a shower. There was like an 800 square foot wraparound deck with this beautiful view of Mount Rainier. It was incredible. But that's what I mean. Like so much of the way that I've just, at least so far done life is like, there are things that excite me. And then when an opportunity comes up to pursue it I just kind of go for it and so tree houses in a way are actually a very natural next step even yeah, though I just true. didn't know it at the time you know but it's yeah. all the same skill sets it, yeah it seemed like you just kind of decided on a whim but like not really on a whim because you actually did it and went through with it yeah I think that's probably right it was like the spark of inspiration was maybe a whim but it, it felt very rooted and grounded in a foundation of stuff that I had been doing my whole life right Right. Wow. Oh my gosh. I cannot imagine people being like, oh my God, you're graduating. What are you going to be? And you're like a treehouse designer. <laughs> yeah. Well, that took, I mean, that took a few months to find that book. So I was like, what are you going to be? And I was like, I have no idea. Like the rest of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And then yeah. after that, you went to Stanford for graduate school. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, my parents are both professors actually and have PhDs. And I think in my head, school wasn't really completed until you had a PhD. <laughs> growing up it was just like yeah yeah that's what you do like school and I love school like but I remember by the time I was like a sophomore and a junior I was like oh actually I don't know if I want to go to grad school that might not be the next step there are a lot of other things I'm enjoying doing yeah then when I found out about IDEO and Stanford the Stanford design program that was the first moment where I was like 
okay, hold on. There are some people out there who are sort of doing this version of design that I love. And the Stanford Design Program, when I was there, it was actually a very cross-disciplinary program that was co-sponsored between the art and the engineering department. So that you could basically apply to the program with either a BFA or a Bachelor of Science. And you had to have one or the other. And then you applied and basically half of these students were engineers, half of them were artists. The half that were artists got an MFA at the end of it and the half that were engineers got an MS at the end of it. But the idea was that design exists at the intersection of art and engineering. And I was like, oh, okay, I might go to grad school now. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sold. (laughs) Exactly, right. So so I kind of went from being like, I don't think I'm going to go to grad school to I probably won't go to grad school, but there is one grad school that if they accept me, I would like to go to. So you may have heard in there that, you know, to apply to this Stanford program, you had to have either a Bachelor of Science or a Bachelor of Fine Arts, of which I had neither because I had a Bachelor of Arts in Engineering. (laughs) So I looked at the requirements for the Bachelor of Science side of it, and I had basically taken all the required engineering classes except Mm -hmm. for one, which was this like advanced electronics circuits and signals class. Mm -hmm. So I weaseled my way into that class my senior year at Brown. I had no business being in that class, but I basically did everything I needed to just pass it. I think I even took it pass fail and I barely passed it. But then I kind of went to Stanford and I was like, Hey guys, so I have this Bachelor of Arts and I know I'm officially not allowed to apply, but, 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 look at the transcript. Like I've done all the things that you asked for, but can I submit an application? Uh And they were like, yes. And then I applied and got rejected, (laughs) (laughs) which which was great. It was truly the best thing that's ever happened because that's what like kept me at the treehouse place for another year. Oh yeah. And they said, you're not allowed to apply right out of college. You have to have a year of life under your belt. Okay. And I was like kind of working the system every step of the way. (laughs) And they very rightfully rejected me. (laughs) Um, So yeah, they rejected me. And that's what kind of, and then I, you know, then the treehouse thing came along kind of right around that same time. And I stuck there for the next year and a half or so. I then reapplied the next year. And in my portfolio, I had all these treehouses. And then they were like, oh, this is serious. Okay, cool. That's you cool. can come now. Right. <laughs> so, so it, was, it almost like worked out in, in a better way. Oh, a way better way. I was nowhere near prepared to go to that program. <laughs> After graduating, I went to IDEO. So IDEO is this design company um, that was founded by someone who went through the Stanford Design Program. That's where I worked for five years. Yeah. So throughout like your time at Stanford, were you still practicing magic? At Stanford, so much of the design program was about bringing your own passion to the program and figuring out ways that you could apply it in this human-centered way. And so for me, magic was always part of it. Like Mm. in a lot of the presentations I gave in class, there would be magic in some component, but also like a lot of my actual projects in art classes or in a free open-ended project course, I would design magic, sometimes magic tricks specifically, but also like other times I did a lot of sculptures with mirrors and using magic knowledge to create like an interesting interpretation of something. Um, so magic, again, has always been part of something that I was doing. And then in fact, at Stanford, I'd say that's where I found my own voice as a magician because it's where I got much better as like a builder and constructor and maker. And so I was working in a really um, amazing shop facility at Stanford called the PRL, which stands for the Product Realization Lab. Uh And there I I just had access to tools and 
making procedures that I didn't before and didn't really know existed. And so I was doing a lot of work in not only wood, which I'm very, very comfortable in from theater and, and treehouse building, but um, mm-hmm. also a lot of work in metal and, mm-hmm. you know, learning to weld and do all that kind of stuff. So a lot of the tricks that I'm kind of most known for in the magic world are mm-hmm. things that I built at Stanford or kind of started working on at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, but then even when I went to IDEO, like I absolutely, not only did I like bring magic actual performance into a lot of the client presentations. When I was working there, it was a group called the Toy Lab that was focused entirely on designing toys. And so I worked with them a lot. And like there are a few toys out there in the world that have little magical components and elements um, that are definitely like straight up magic tricks integrated into toys. And uh-huh. that's stuff that I got to work yeah. on. And in fact, when I got hired at IDEO, my official title was the wild card. <laughs> so the job description was literally like wild card intern. Do you think you would be a good fit at IDEO, but it's a little hard to describe why? Like reach out. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was like, I'm a set designing, treehouse building magician. <laughs> and all of those have absolute application for your clients but yeah. you just don't know that yet. <laughs> and, and they were like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll give this guy a try for three months. Let's yeah. go. And then three wow. months turned into, you know, five years. So. That's amazing. So yeah. what, what kind of clients were they? It's always nice when a product goes public because then we can oh. talk about it. So huh. I did work with Hyundai, the car company Hyundai, and we yeah. had this entire initiative around um, driver wellness. Hyundai also said like, what about mental wellness in a car? So yeah. like people who are commuting a ton or like long haul truck drivers, how do you keep people alert and focused on the road? And how do you keep mm-hmm. them like not road ragey? <laughs> um, right. And as we designed this interactive booth at uh, CES, which is the consumer electronics show, like a really big show in Las Vegas that happens every year. This installation we did was super magic inspired. It was like a VR thing where people like sat down in this empty room, put VR goggles on, and then slowly this in, you know, virtual reality, a car built around them. And then the narrator was like, feel like you're in the car, blah, blah, blah. No, seriously, reach forward, grab the wheel. And then they reach forward and grab the wheel. And like in 3D virtual space where the wheel should have been, there was actually a physical wheel there. And it was like, oh, and then afterwards they took off the goggles. And like, once again, the room was just completely empty and barren. And it's like, what the, you know? So so like, that's the thing is like, I've always found ways to bring magic and theater and performance into even like automotive clients. That's amazing. Um, and I bet yeah. it makes everything more interactive and like interesting for the consumers as well. Yeah, well, so much of what we did at IDEO was like we were trying to design the future, right? Like design is about yeah. creating things that don't exist. And so the way to do that is to engage people's imaginations and help them kind of see and try to experience this world that could be based on design. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what magic is, right? Like magic is about creating things that should be impossible, like letting audiences witness and experience that on stage. And design is the same. It's just trying to create these things that are currently impossible based on reality um, and make that a new possibility for consumers, users, people, the world. You know, So there's a lot of overlap between what magicians right. are trying to do on stage and what designers are trying to do for the world. Right. So like almost as a concept, like magic can be applied to any sort of innovative venture, but design specifically is like very in tune with that. I think so. I mean, magic is also just an awesome art form and it's really yeah. fun to fool people. Like that, <laughs> That's allowed to be a good thing in and of itself. You don't have to also couple that with like neuroscience and psychology to make it important and valuable. You know what I mean? But I'm just saying like me personally, I've spent a lot of time thinking about magic specifically and I've spent a lot of time thinking about design specifically. 
Mm-hmm. And finding those overlaps have been very fun and beneficial for me in my career and my work. Okay, so then after that, then did you found the Magic Patio? Yes, the Magic Patio was this thing that just sort of happened naturally. So I moved into an apartment in San Francisco with two other friends from the design program at Stanford. Okay. And when we visited this apartment, there was a big like 500 square foot patio on the back of this apartment. Huh. And it was like, what? Like, this is amazing. Okay. Huh. And then instantly when I went out there, I was like, oh, I could do magic shows out here. Oh now, God. I had no idea the scale that this would become, but like, I just thought it would be fun to do some magic shows for friends and family, like outdoor magic shows. Right. And that was sort of the just initial spark of an idea that then over the course of five years, you know, a 500 square foot back patio turned into an elevated stage with a full kind of 12 foot tall proscenium arch and like 50 yeah. seats and a bar in the back and oh um, all of these things that were very borderline legal. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, we were very, very careful. It was things like it, the shows were all invite only. You had to be on a list um, oh, yeah. and then that list would get an email. And, the, the, you know, so it was all, it wasn't a public show. Um, also, we didn't charge for tickets. There was a suggested donation, which pretty much oh, everyone wow. followed. And then we didn't sell any drinks. We just kind of had drinks available if people wanted. So officially everything I was doing was just a party. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that was that for like four years. The first year we did shows like one weekend a month. So like Friday mm-hmm. and Saturday once a month. And everyone who came was able to like send an invite to a few other people. So that was how our list started growing. And by the last year we were doing shows out there, I think we were doing shows almost every other weekend. And like the entire six months of shows would just sell out in 60 seconds. Wow. Um, it was crazy. Yeah. And that was, and that was the moment where then after that happened, it was very clear that this was no longer sustainable. Like my neighbors were awesome and they were, they were super happy to let me do this. And I invited them to all the shows and they came and watched and whatnot. But it was like, yeah, I mean, I can't, put more people out on this patio because it would be unsafe we can't do more shows because the neighbors would freak out rightly so this team of folks who have made this thing like we believe in this enough and the world seems to enjoy it enough Mm -hmm. so let's go ahead and i'll sign a lease on a new space and turn it into like a real thing so that is how you prototype by the way that's like (laughs) you know it it wasn't about prototyping a trick it was about prototyping that whole experience as a thing and once i had confidence that we had created something that was of value to people Mm-hmm. That's when I signed a terrifying lease to like <laughs> rent a commercial space in San Francisco. <laughs> right, right, right. So that was the, your patio was the ultimate prototype. It truly was. Yeah. Okay. And then how did you think to not sell tickets and have it be only invite and like put a bar in there and then do it just by donations and have that word of mouth market? Well, part of that just started um, kind of out of necessity and fear because <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I don't know if this is going to work. Like, this is a crazy idea. Um, um, right, yeah. And so it started with just friends and family. That first show, we probably had about 40 people who I knew all of them. Uh-huh. And so it was like, all right, well, if they invite people that they know, like, it's still probably a pretty friendly audience who's going to forgive it if a big rainstorm comes in. And I'm like, everyone out quick, you know. <laughs> um, but then obviously, like, by the end, it was really fun when I got to a place where I was like, wow, I don't know anyone in this audience. This is cool. Mm-hmm. So that's been a really nice thing, being able to make it public and uh-huh. legal is it can now be open <laughs> to anyone um, yeah, and doesn't feel as insider in a good way but um anyways yeah the whole idea of that was really just out of fear up front but then also necessity i was like i can't legally be running a business out of my apartment so it has to be 
invite only because then it's not public shows. It's just parties and you're allowed to have parties in your apartment. And as long as I'm not charging and people are just donating, like, yeah, you're allowed to, you know, give 10 bucks to help pay for a case of wine when you go to a party, you know, like it's all those kinds of things. So I was like looking for all the loopholes that would let me not get in trouble. Yeah. Wait, wow. That actually kind of worked out so perfectly. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) So then you moved to like an actual space and opened it up to the public? Yeah. So once kind of we've reached this critical mass and we had this, you know, supply problem, not a demand problem, which was, is a wonderful problem to have. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I started looking for real estate, which (laughs) very, very expensive and um, hard anyways. um, Yeah. So I was looking for about a year, never really found a space in San Francisco. I was close on a couple. And then just one day I was walking in my neighborhood and saw kind of, you know, this empty space. And this store, this place had been empty for like three years. So I don't know how I didn't have the idea before, but yeah, it was this completely gutted, vacant, what had been like a Metro PCS three years ago, but the space was just gutted down to the floorboards and like all of the wiring exposed and the studs exposed, no drywall, no nothing. And I was like, oh, it's perfect. Here we are. (laughs) And so, I mean, again, my, you know, I love kind of taking spaces that have been completely empty and then imagining what they could be and in fact the fact that it was gutted meant that I didn't have to pay for demolition or like changing layouts or anything like that yeah it worked out really really well and um, signed a lease on the space spent about four months transforming it into not only the magic theater in the back but then also a candy shop in the front it's kind of got that wonderful speakeasy thing that everyone loves so much including myself but um, yeah so if you walk by the store I mean right now you know everything's closed but if you walk by the store on a normal day, um, it's a candy shop from the front. So I partnered with this woman who runs a shop in the Castro called Giddy Candy. And uh, I just fell in love with her candy. She's an, oh, it's an incredible shop. Um, and so we partnered and she kind of runs the candy shop and okay. supplies us with just incredible chocolate bars and incredible gummy candies. Wow. And um, it, that's kind of what the shop is during the day. And then it also becomes kind of the world's best concession stand before the actual magic shows at night. So then the theater itself, we've designed the set inside the theater to feel very much like my backyard patio. Mm. And um, we kind of have a lot of like greenery and plant elements. So we're not trying to like do a full Disneyland make you think you're outdoors when you're really indoors. But for anyone who knows Disneyland, the Blue Bayou was initially a source of inspiration. And then we were like, no, if you do that poorly, it really doesn't work well. So instead, we kind of created what feels like definitely a a theater, but all of the elements of that theater kind of have outdoor elements. So, you know, the chairs are patio chairs and the seating platforms, it's made of decking as opposed to like, you know, your standard black theater chairs and all that. And there are little plants kind of creaking up through all the cracks in the floor and all that kind of stuff. So it's, again, the space itself is half the attraction. It's not just, you know, the patch of the stage. adds to the whole experience. Yeah. Yeah. And then really quickly, I know that you were on Penn and Teller's Celeste show, is that right? Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. How did how did that even come up? Yeah, so the producers reached out and I submitted um, one of the tricks that is very much based in history. So that trick was originally performed by Jean-Robert Houdin, who was a French magician 200 years ago, basically. And I kind of took that as the initial source of inspiration and then re-engineered and designed some stuff uh, to turn it into kind of something a little different. And the producers, I guess, saw that, liked that, and invited me on. And then I'm not sure if I'm officially allowed to say this, but I actually also filmed again for the show this year. So I, I don't totally know what's happening with that. But um, assuming, they, yeah, assuming they released that season, I have another illusion that would be on that show. That's so um, cool. 
Oh my gosh, congrats. Oh, thank you. It was very fun to do, but mm -hmm. I, I must admit, I prefer my small San Francisco audiences <laughs> as opposed to the biggest theaters. Yeah, yeah, you get to kind of create a little more spark there. Yeah, it can become a bit more of a conversation. It's nice to get to engage with the audience for sure. And I know everything's kind of all upended. Do you have like new ideas of how to produce your show or just kind of seeing what happens? Well, I've, sh I've started doing live streams. Right now it's every other Friday we've been doing a show called Live from the Magic Patio, which is streaming through YouTube. Um, that's been that's been fun. We call that an online magic experiment. That's sort of our tagline for the show. I think huh. it's one of those things where, yeah, just this is this whole brave new world of like, how do you, you know, engage in this moment? And I don't, I don't really know what the future of magic looks like. And it's, it's interesting, like even just, we've done two and actually this Friday is going to be our third live stream episode. But one of the things was, it, it, you know, it's like, well, this is a whole new medium. So how do you actually leverage the medium and make something different as opposed to just doing your same old magic show, but putting a camera in the audience instead of having humans. And so I, that's something that I haven't really developed a point of view on, although I've started to play around with some ways to do that. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think like, as we keep doing these, these live streams, we'll find kind of more engaging ways to do that. One of the things, though, that we've started doing is we now live stream on Saturday, where I actually teach three magic tricks that are inspired kind of by the show that I had just done. Like I did that two weeks ago and I didn't even think about the fact that I was teaching it on a Saturday before Mother's Day, but I got a lot of people who emailed me afterwards being like, amazing, thank you so much. You just provided like an incredible project for our kids for the next week to learn. And also like my son and daughter did a magic show for me on Mother's Day. Wait, I was oh like, God, oh my so God, like, yeah, it was so uh -huh. beautiful. So I think, I mean, the, the, this is a whole nother hour long phone call, but like, <laughs> Magic is a very gendered thing. I mean, there are not many female magicians or women magicians. One of the things I get really, really excited about with even doing this little online magic class is mm. getting girls excited about magic too. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, and so Naomi, who I perform with, is, is going to start to teach some of those tricks as well. And, you know, like there aren't enough female magicians as role models and just all that kind of stuff. So I right. just love the idea that maybe at this moment in quarantine, like part of the way to keep magic alive is by exposing some of the secrets and getting a new generation of magicians excited for magic. So that, who knows, that might end up being more of my focus than actual performance, we'll see. Yeah, that's amazing. I feel like, yeah, now's a perfect time to spread it by teaching almost. I yeah, mean, it's like a project, you know? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I feel like you'll probably, with your whole design thinking and everything, you'll probably end up figuring out a way to make the medium of like doing it online almost to your advantage or somehow add a new twist to the magic shows. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I'll admit these past couple of weeks have been like a little stressful and it's more just like, oh God, we got another one of these live streams. Like quick, what tricks can we do? Yeah. It feels like it's been yeah. a little bit rushed. Um, so I'm excited to, now that we're getting in a bit of a flow and we've started to figure out some of the tech technology and like we've gotten over some of those technological hurdles mm -hmm. I think now we're going to be able to get creative and do exactly what you just said which is have fun with it and kind of use some design to figure out unique ways to do it so yeah, exactly. hopefully that will be coming up in the next couple of weeks that's um, exciting um well thank you so much I really really appreciate you taking the time to share your story about this is amazing oh thank you yeah no absolutely always happy to chat hopefully cool. I'll be able to see your magic show senior year <laughs> yeah oh fingers yeah. crossed <laughs> fingers crossed